So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are really excited to be joined by Dr. James Henderson, who is the chairman of the GAS program and director of the Energy Transition Research Initiative at Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Henderson. Thanks, Lev. Pleasure to be here. Last week, you wrote an op-ed for The Times entitled, What It Will Mean As Europe Frees Itself From Russian Energy. This was a, a fascinating opinion piece. And, and in it, you said that, that Europe imports roughly 40% of its natural gas from Russia, but that the European Commission wants to reduce Russian imports by two thirds as a response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I guess I, I wanna start with a really basic question. What is natural gas and what do you do with it? Okay, so natural gas is, uh, is methane. Uh, which um, comes out of the ground large, normally with or close to oil, um, but sometimes on its own. It's the kind of stuff that shale drillers will go and look for uh, in the US. Uh, in Russia, it's large uh, gas fields in Siberia. Uh, in large parts of Europe, it's offshore under the ocean bed being drilled for by large drilling rigs, and it comes on shore and it's used in power stations to generate electricity. It's used in industrial plants for heating purposes. So industrial heating. So, for example, steel manufacture and it's used in chemicals plants and fertilizer plants. And then importantly, it's also used in the homes, mainly for heating, residential heating. So particularly in Europe, which gets quite cold in winter, there's quite a large amount of residential uh, heating demand met by gas as well. So it's got a broad use across the economy. Yeah, so how is it that Europe became so dependent on, on Russian gas? So I think an important thing to understand about Europe is that about 50 years ago, in the kind of 1960s, when gas became important, uh, it largely became important because at the time, Europe produced quite a lot of its own gas. So countries like the UK, the Netherlands, Denmark, and particularly Norway, discovered gas in the North Sea and so, uh, you know, gas was a fuel that was readily available uh, in Europe and infrastructure was built, pipelines were constructed, um, indust industrial plants and people's houses were made ready for gas. And at the same time, Germany in particular, but Europe generally, was trying to generate friendlier relations with the Soviet Union at the time, who also had a lot of gas, needed help building pipe. And so imports of uh, Russian Soviet gas was seen as a way of kind of building a bridge, if you like, an economic bridge with the Soviet Union. And so Europe started using its own gas, imported some gas from Russia, also bought what is known as liquefied natural gas, LNG, which is gas that is cooled down to minus 160 degrees and shipped around on uh, large LNG tankers. So it had this kind of diverse supply of gas. Now, over time, unfortunately for Europe, its own gas production went into decline, quite rapid decline. So really, the only country that produces a large amount of gas now is Norway. And Europe became more and more dependent on external countries for imports. So about 85% of Europe's overall gas is imported now from not just from Russia, but from North Africa, from Central Asia, and from the global gas market. But because Russian gas is relatively nearby, there are pipelines already in place, and it's quite cheap to produce, it became very competitive. And 
when Europe kind of opened up its markets to all competitive gas, often consumers wanted to buy Russian gas. And that is why basically Russian gas became more and more important over time, because basically there's a lot of it. It's pretty cheap. And the infrastructure to bring it to Europe is already in place. There are a lot of pipelines already in place. I see. So I want to talk a little bit about this transition. I want to maybe talk about the alternatives to depending so much on Russian gas. First, I want to talk about the supply side. What are some alternative energy sources that Europeans, if there are any, could use to replace Russian gas? And and what are the technological barriers to using these sources? Well, so there's two different forms of alternative energy supply. There's alternative forms of gas, and then there's different forms of energy. So uh, in terms of alternative form or, or sources of gas, I think what you're talking about in the short term is trying to increase imports from existing players. So there's North Africa, as I've mentioned, which has a little bit more gas to offer. There's the Caspian, which is currently the pipeline's pretty full. Norway has a little bit more gas to offer, but eventually its fields will go into decline. The major source is liquefied natural gas from projects all over the world, which can cool their gas down and ship it to Europe. And the United States is one of those major players, but there are other countries like Qatar, uh, Nigeria, uh, countries in East Africa like Mozambique, and also even Australia. Now, the problem is not finding an alternative source, it's finding a big enough alternative source because 150 billion cubic meters of gas is roughly what Europe imported from Russia last year. And finding that much gas, if I tell you that the entire LNG market in the entire world last year was about 550 to 600 billion cubic meters, you can see that 150 of extra is an awful lot of gas to go and look for. Now, as it happens, Europe isn't looking for that much LNG. They're looking for about 50 BCM this year. But even that much in a market that is full of projects that take a long time to develop, they take about four or five years, these projects to develop. That's a lot of gas to be looking for. And currently, gas prices are right, have risen dramatically because there basically isn't enough gas in the world to do what Europe wants to do, which is to replace two thirds of Russian imports in a very short space of time. So there will be a search for more LNG and there there will be a request to current producers, but also what Europe's doing is looking at alternative energy sources. So from good to bad, there is a proposal to increase the renewable energy production. So solar and wind in particular in Europe. Um, There is a proposal to increase the production of biomethane, which is gas from waste products. And then there is some countries are looking at their proposals to shut down nuclear and are reversing those proposals and are are slowing down the shutdown of nuclear, so more nuclear energy. And then at the worst end of the spectrum, there is increased use of coal. And it's only bad because of obviously environmental impact. So coal, particularly in power generation, is another source of short term alternative energy. So that's what Europe is planning to do even with all those efforts, doing it in only 12 months is a very, very difficult job. And so there probably aren't enough alternative sources of supply to do what Europe wants to do. And if the gas got turned off for any reason, then Europe's energy system would be in quite a lot of trouble. Yeah, I want to talk about the nuclear option for a sec. 
Is it possible to just flip back on the switches of nuclear plants? I'm thinking, you know, I read a lot about Germany, you know, moving back towards nuclear. Can you just turn back on the, the plants and, and restart them again? It depends very much where you are in the process of shutting them down. Once they're shut and the core is concreted over, then no, you can't just flick a switch and turn them back on again. But if you've taken a decision, for example, to shut down your nuclear plants and it takes some time to do it over a period of two or three years, and you're only six months into that cycle, then yes, you can reverse your decision. So countries like, I mean, Belgium's a good example, which has two nuclear plants, which it decided it wanted to shut down, but has now reversed that decision. And there's a very good chance that within six months, we'll get electricity out of those plants again. Germany has a bit, is a bit further down the road and its plants, well, some of its plants are meant to be shut by the end of 2022. And there, both politically and practically, it's a bit more difficult to turn that decision around. Um, I think Germany could certainly turn around some of its nuclear plants, but some have gone too far. So, uh, yeah, it depends where you are in the cycle. But certainly there is the potential for some of the nuclear plants in Europe, which were going to be shut down, to have that process slowed or reversed, at least in the short term. One of the things that's frustrating is it sounds like what you're saying is that Europe is kind of scrambling right now. And, you know, Russia first invades Ukraine in 2014. There must have been some sense that Russia would would continue their belligerence. So why is it that Europe is, if in fact, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like they're scrambling, if that's the case, why is it that they're not more prepared? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and I think it's one that politicians are going to have to face up to. You're absolutely right. I think for a long time, before 2014, Russia was seen as a very secure supplier of gas. I mean, even during the Cold War, there hadn't really been any cutoffs. There'd been some slight hiccups, um, a small cutoff in 2009 around a pricing dispute with Ukraine and a small cutoff in 2006. But other than that, there hadn't really been any major disturbances. And then you're up, but you're absolutely right. In 2014, that was a very clear signal that Russia had some belligerent intent, particularly around Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, it would have been very sensible with hindsight, certainly, for Europe to have made a much bigger effort to build more LNG receiving terminals and to encourage the development of more global LNG and even to look for more gas within Europe. So yeah, that's definitely a failing. Um, and Europe left itself far too vulnerable to a short-term interruption. And I guess that's the that's the problem with, with the... The other argument was that it's a two-way relationship, that Europe relies on Russian gas, but Russia relies on Europe's revenues from buying that gas to fund its own economy. But I think you know, what's become very clear is that although that dependency is two-way, the timescales of the dependency are different. Europe is immediately reliant on Russian gas. If the gas gets turned off, Europe suffers pretty much immediately, whereas if the revenues stop flowing, then Russia can survive for you know, quite a long time before it starts to really suffer. So I think that, you know, that dependency has not turned out to be quite as much of an insurance policy as Europe had hoped. And the other thing that Europe did was it created a, a market, a liberalized market, very much like the one in the US, where gas all competes with other gas and you get the best price. But that relies on the global market being fully supplied with gas. And unfortunately, at the moment, you know, demand in Asia and other regions has been rising very sharply. So there's a lot of competition for the gas in the market. So again, 
that backstop of LNG has not been as readily available as Europe had hoped. I read an article you wrote several years ago about a newly developed relationship between the Russian gas producers and the Chinese oil companies or Chinese energy companies. How much of you th- do you think Russia's calculations with regard to Europe are, okay, well, you know, we can basically we can basically stop selling to them for a short period of time because we've got this this market in, in China. So the relationship is certainly strengthening. Um, but as with all infrastructure based relationships, it takes time to mature. So certainly uh, Russia has been selling oil to China since 2009 and it sells about 1.6 million barrels a day of oil to China, which is about one third of its total crude oil exports. So that's a pretty mature relationship now. In terms of gas, a pipeline was finished in 2019 and is currently being filled uh, and is selling, will will be selling about 38 billion cubic meters of gas by 2025. So that's about one quarter to one third of what uh, Russia sells to Europe. So there are plans for new pipelines, which could increase that 38 to around 100 over the next 10 years. So at that point, you're selling 100 mainly to China via pipeline versus 150 to Europe. And Russia is also developing its own LNG projects. So selling liquefied natural gas on ships from projects in the Arctic. And most of that will go to Asia as well. So you could imagine a scenario where by 2035, Russia might have increased its sales to Asia to the level they were in Europe last year. So that is certainly part of Russia's plan. But as you can see from the dates I've mentioned, it's a good 10 years away. Mm -hmm. It's not something they can flick a switch and do overnight. So yes, it's certainly part of the plan, but it's a plan that will take some maturing. And I think the other thing to say is that China clearly sees what's happening and will demand a very competitive price from Russia for buying its oil and gas. It will not be wanting to pay current high prices. And you can see indeed in the oil market, Russian oil is selling at something like a 30 to $40 discount to other forms of oil because countries in Asia are buying it, but are only buying it at a very, very discounted price. So I think that, yes, the relationship will be strong, but the bargaining power is certainly in favor of China and other Asian countries as they go to buy Russian hydrocarbons. Wow. There was also another recent New York Times article where they were saying that one positive thing that the European Union has done is they've heavily subsidized large-scale innovative alternative energy projects. But one of the problems is, is there, there's lots of capital floating around the world it's just not going to these alternative energy projects in any meaningful way. And the, the headline was something like, how can these projects get the money that NFTs are getting? So I guess one of the things that is, I mean, I have a genuine question here and I don't understand it. There seems like there is a lot of capital going to things like cryptocurrency, NFTs, things that don't seem apparently useful right now. And I'm wondering why is it that it's been so difficult for that money to be directed towards projects which might save save the world, save the species? Um, uh, the answer is because um, businesses make decisions based on 
commercial reality, not on saving the planet, sadly. And at the moment, although the price of renewable electricity is coming down and is now starting to make money, the electricity business is effectively a utility business where you make a utility rate of return, which is about 8 to 10 to 12% per annum. And if you invest in some of the things you've mentioned, like cryptocurrencies, you can make many multiples of that. The risk is obviously a lot higher, but your returns are potentially a lot higher. So investors are playing a, a risk and return game. And the other thing to say is that the introduction of clean energy requires government policy because it's not just about building solar farms or wind farms. It's about having the infrastructure in place to then move the electricity. It's about having the infrastructure in place to deal with the times when the, the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. And it's to do with the way that electricity is traded, particularly when it's intermittent, because it's a very different form of electricity production to the standard electricity production, which is always available. So if you think of a gas-fired plant, it's always ready to, to sell electricity. And therefore, the market is set up to basically deal with the marginal cost of electricity supply. In a renewable world, when solar energy is produced, it's essentially produced at pretty much zero marginal cost because there's no cost to the, the sunlight hitting the, hitting the solar panel. But when the sun isn't shining, there's just no electricity. So it's a completely different model. And you need new regulation and new policies and new financial and commercial incentives to really get companies to invest heavily, particularly in regions like Europe, where obviously there's less sunshine uh, and the wind is remains intermittent. So I think that um, there are a number of governmental policy and regulatory issues behind this, and governments have had many other priorities. The environment is clearly a major one, but unfortunately what we've seen is that shorter term economic, pandemic, and now war priorities have rather stolen the thunder. I mean, I agree with you that we do need to focus a lot more on environmental issues over the rest of this decade. And I hope that high oil and gas prices and electricity prices now will provide the incentive that's needed to get companies to invest in renewable energy, because renewable energy has two benefits. One, it is becoming a lot cheaper. And two, it is indigenous, i.e. domestic energy production. So you're not reliant on anyone else. So in terms of energy security, you do get that benefit as well. So I think that many countries, including the US, are now seeing the benefits of green energy as not just saving the environment, but also increasing energy security. One caveat, it would be very, very helpful and is absolute priority to develop battery technology and other forms of backup so that you can store electricity for when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. Once we get storage sorted out, then we will have a real chance of making a, a kind of green electricity um, grid system work properly. And that's the other problem at the moment. We don't have that storage technology that is really needed to uh, back up the renewable energy we're developing. I read a recent report by, in preparation for this interview by British Petroleum, by BP. In the report, they seem to be indicating that the transition will happen, but the question is how long will it take and will it be in time? And I know there's a big debate 
over how long this transition will be. Just wondering what, what your sense, where you are in that debate. So I think that what the energy transition is doing is it's moving an entire global energy system that currently relies for 80%, 80% of its energy on hydrocarbons to a net zero system by 2050. But you are changing a dramatic amount of energy from one system to another. And it's not just changing the sources of supply, but as I've mentioned, it's ch changing the rules of engagement, the marketplace, et cetera. And the other thing you have to remember is that the transition means something different in every single region. So as an example, the United States, emissions in the United States have been falling because there's been a dramatic increase in gas usage instead of coal and gas generates half as much carbon as coal when burned. So that's you know, been the transition in the United States so far. And now we're moving on to renewables. In Europe, we've kind of been at the renewables game for about the last 10 years and we need to accelerate further. But when you go over to Asia, then almost 50 to 60% of their energy is currently coal. So the transition for Asia is a bit like the transition's been for the US. It's from coal to gas first and then to renewables. And so um, around the world, the interpretation of the energy transition is, is very different. And so I do think um, that it is gonna take a reasonable amount of time. And I think the realization has dawned now that just talking about moving away from hydrocarbons to green energy is too simplistic and would take too long across the whole world. Because if you think about the emissions in the world, then <clears throat> one third of them come from OECD developed world countries, roughly. So that's Europe, North America, and some other, some other you know, more advanced Asian countries. One third come from China alone and one third come from the developing world. And so you can imagine a way that the developed world does its transition towards renewables. But when you're thinking about China and the developing world, firstly, there's a move away from coal, which is the first step. And secondly, in the developing world, it's not so true of China, there's a real shortage of money for this. It's not the priority. The priority is economic development. And so therefore, asking these countries to basically move to a fuel that they don't really understand, renewables, and is a bit more expensive, certainly, than the coal they're currently using and could undermine their economic development for a while, while they look at the developed world and say, well, hold on, you're the one who caused the problem and you're the one who benefited from all those emissions over the last 150 years. Essentially, the developed world has a responsibility to, find, to provide significant finance for the developing world to do its transition. And so... And it's not doing that at the moment. It's failed to, to meet its promises. So we have to bear all these things in, in mind. And as you do, you, you come to the conclusion that it is going to take a reasonable amount of time. And it's not just about renewables. It's about carbon capture and carbon removal from the atmosphere, because almost certainly now we're not going to be on track for our net zero target as we go through 2030 and 2040. So it's almost certain that for two reasons, we will need technologies that not just generate green energy, but allow us to continue using hydrocarbons, but take the carbon either away as you burn it or directly out of the atmosphere. And that is, has been realized now by the UN and the International Panel for Climate Change and others who are looking at saying, 
you need to think about this in terms of all technologies. You can't be you can't discriminate between technologies anymore. We have to look at every possible technology we can use both to generate green green electricity, greener forms of energy, but also to remove carbon from the atmosphere in order that the countries in the developing world, particularly who will continue to burn hydrocarbons, can do so in a cleaner way. And does that technology, the carbon capture technology, does that exist? Yes, it does. It is. It, it does exist. It's, it's, it's just expensive. And it has never been used at dramatic scale. So yes, there is. There is you can certainly uh, remove carbon at the source of burning in power stations. It's used on oil rigs and it can be used in industrial plants as well. But adding it obviously adds cost. And at the moment, those costs are quite high. Now, with, with oil and gas prices being where they are, perhaps it's not so important. But really, what's needed in the world is some form of carbon price or carbon tax so that we crystallize the environmental cost of what we're doing. There has to be a number that we pay for, for essentially for damaging the environment. And as soon as we start to pay for that cost, then the technologies that reduce that, reduce that uh, pain to the environment and therefore reduce cost become economic. And at the moment, there aren't enough countries in the world that have a high enough carbon price to really make these technologies economic. So it's going to take a significant effort around carbon taxation and pricing, and it's going to take significant effort around government policy and government support for research and development of these technologies to, to make it happen. And we're starting to see discussion of that, certainly at the COP meetings, but unfortunately, not enough concrete action to date. I want to respect your time, and I want to end with asking um, a little bit about the demand side. So in your opinion piece for The Times, you said that if, even if we just reduce our thermostat by one degree, we could save, I think it was like 10 billion cubic meters of gas. So I'm wondering, so what are some things that, that people can do on the demand side to reduce our dependency on, on things like gas or, or oil? It's a very, very important question. And I think it's probably the critical question that is ignored by too many policymakers, which is that it's all very well blaming producers of oil and gas. But the, the bottom line is, if it wasn't being consumed, they wouldn't produce it. And so there really is a responsibility on consumers to really think about energy efficiency. Now, you've mentioned turning the thermostat down by one degree. I say it's one degree Celsius is what we use in Europe rather than Fahrenheit. Uh -huh. um, but saving 10 billion cubic meters of gas. So, yeah, that's that's a, a, a significant number. But what we're really talking about is insulation in houses. Uh, we're talking about the use of heat pumps. So electric heat pumps that would be powered, hopefully, by green electricity, by solar panels on roofs. We're talking about installation of solar panels on rooftops. We are talking about, on the oil demand side, potentially, uh, well, clearly more efficient engines, a move to electric cars, but simple things like driving more slowly. I mean, one of the reasons that low speed limits were introduced in the 1970s during the oil crisis of the 70s, when oil prices jumped, was to reduce demand. So if everyone drove at 50 miles an hour rather than 70 miles an hour, we'd see a significant drop off in demand for petrol and diesel. So again, do customers and consumers really think about this stuff from day to day? No, they don't. They only think about it when they're forced to think about it because the cost is higher. So right now, as it happens, the oil price has risen and petrol prices have gone up. So people are thinking about it. 
but they need to think about it as well when prices go down. And one way to make them think about it is to impose that carbon tax I talked about. Yeah, it all comes back to the carbon tax, yeah. It does. That's not popular. That's not popular. Politicians hate that because obviously no one likes imposing a cost on voters. But the brutal truth is that voters don't really respond to long-term problems like the environment. They respond to things that are happening immediately. Now, one day, an environmental crisis will happen immediately, and then we'll all wish we'd driven more slowly. But in the short term, they unfortunately respond to prices. And therefore, I think politicians are going to have to bite the bullet uh, at some point and accept the fact that it's higher prices that are going to force consumers to act. And we're seeing that now. I mean, I'm, I'm in the UK and we are seeing people. I mean, it's not great, but we are seeing people turning down their thermostats. We are seeing people really think about journeys they're taking in their cars and sharing cars. Uh, we are seeing people demand for electric cars going up because the price of electricity is so much lower than the price of gasoline. So, um, you know, it, it, it does have an effect, but that is that is the kind of thing that's going to have to happen. And it's going to take um, government support because clearly one can't expect every member of society to be able to respond to price. I mean, some people are too poor to be able to afford higher prices and they will need support. And, you know, taxes will need to be imposed on those who can afford it and refunnel to those who can't. But so there's, there's government policy involved here to making sure that the burden is shared equally and is not piled on people who can't afford it, which will cause a very negative reaction. But uh, ultimately, we will have to get policies in place that which encourage um, consumers to move away from hydrocarbons and consumers to move towards insisting on greener energy, insisting on you know greener forms of transport like electric cars and being able to install things like heat pumps hydrogen is another fuel that people are talking about but again there's a cost to switching from methane to hydrogen so that will have to be supported by government policy but uh, yeah the demand side is absolutely critical um, because ultimately that's where the game is going to be decided consumers have to consume less hydrocarbons and then less hydrocarbons will be produced I hope you enjoyed the show today. This is a small request for a small donation. If you are a regular listener and were thinking about donating, now is the time to do it. Even a dollar or two a month would be wonderful. We are trying to hire an editor. We are a long way from our goal, but um, I think with with some donations this month, we, we might get there. So consider it. You can go to the website, which is www.acorrectionpodcast.com. Your donation button there. If you live in the United States, it's a tax-deductible donation, which is uh, a real benefit. In any case, please consider donating, and we will see you next week. <laughs>